You are listening to a sermon by Tanner Sherlock. Visit com for more info. Okay, so last week uh, we got down to the basics a little bit. I was talking about Jesus, and I made the point that you, within your walk, the biggest takeaway I wanted you to take from last week was to never get to a point where your walk with Christ is no longer exciting. You want to keep your relationship with Christ vibrant, uh, exciting, new. You want to keep going further and further in your walk. You don't want to get to a point where you're just maintaining a certain level because eventually that level you will either become bitter or you will become prideful or you will eventually start dropping off. And so with that comes the information that if you know about Jesus Christ and someone's presented you the information about Jesus Christ coming down from heaven dying on the cross, being risen again so that we could inherit uh, the kingdom, that piece of information is literally the most powerful, most amazing, most epic piece of information you will ever hear in your entire life. And if you've already heard that information, which I'm hoping that everyone in here has, if not, congratulations, you just heard it. Um, If you've heard that piece of information, then your entire walk with Christ, you're never going to hear something more powerful, more amazing, more epic than that. And so your walk with Christ, you have to make sure you come to it and approach it with the level of, I'm trying to get deeper, I'm trying to get more intimate, I'm trying to get more passionate with my relationship with God. Because if if all you're doing is writing that piece of information and you're not growing in your walk, eventually your walk will become stagnant because you're not going to hear another piece of more amazing information. There's no conference, there's no, no sermon, there's no amount of worship that can replace that piece of information because it is literally the most powerful thing that you will ever hear. And so with your walk, you have to have that level of of integrated uh, relationship with Christ. You have to have that investment where you are seeking out God in order to get closer to Him. And so when I wrote the sermon for last week, as it was basically, I, I titled it, Who is Jesus? As I was finishing up writing it last week, I really felt like God was prompting me, well, What about God the Father? What about the Holy Spirit? I think a lot of times within our walk, we can get to a point where we we know everything there is to know about Jesus, but sometimes we can get to a point where we almost abandon the God the Father because we feel like, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. That's that's not relevant to us anymore. It's all about Jesus Christ and and what Jesus did on the cross. And I, I really feel like it is important for us to have a healthy knowledge of all three, of all three parts of the Trinity, You've got to know about Jesus Christ. You've got to know about God the Father. And you've got to know about the Holy Spirit in order to have a healthy walk with Christ. So last week after Chi Alpha, um, I think it was actually at post Chi Alpha at McDonald's. I I believe I was having a conversation with Rob and somebody else. And uh, we were talking about how you have to put your story, you have to, to speak on the person's level that you're having a conversation with. And we kind of created this elaborate thing where uh, the, the story of Jesus Christ was a football game and what it would look like, you know, and, and I don't even remember. It was something like that the Denver Broncos were Jesus and they overcame even though it didn't look like they could overcome. It was something like that, and the Broncos won the Super Bowl. Yeah, congratulations. And so I was having this conversation, and then I made the joke, yeah, and then when, when Satan went to tempt uh, Jesus, they called the trap play. And me and Rob started laughing pretty hard. It was a hilarious joke. And as I can tell in here, most of you guys don't understand that. And so my wife was the exact same way. My wife's sitting there. And so I began explaining the trap play. I'm like, okay, basically what it is is you have your offense lined up, and the defense is lined up against them, and you let the DN come across, and then you pull your tackle. And so basically the DN thinks he's got a free shot at the quarterback, but in reality you have a trap set up for him, and when you pull the lineman back, and he comes across and just lays out the D-end. And my wife's just still just staring at me. And she goes, I have no clue what you just said. And I was like, ah, okay. So then I had to explain the positions to her in order for her to you know, even understand the explanation of the play. And so I realized, you know, with that, you can't understand the play if you don't understand the players. Does that make sense? Got that? Got that out of that story? Awesome. And so last week, I made sure to explain Jesus because I feel like for us to truly come to an understanding of who God the Father is, we have to understand Jesus Christ. 
We have to understand what Jesus Christ did for us in dying on the cross. We have to understand what Jesus Christ did for us in coming down from heaven in order to even truly understand God the Father in his entirety. And I, I know I'm not saying you can get to a point where you can truly fully understand God, but in order for us to understand God the Father better, we have to understand who Jesus is. We have to understand what Jesus did for us. And so I want to get the point across that you need to know the players before you learn the play. You need to know how to put a parachute on before you go skydiving. So you need to know who Jesus is before you learn about God the Father. At least it's more beneficial in my mind. And so today I want to talk, like I said, about God the Father and who he is and what he represents and, and how we should view him. And the reason I feel like this is important is because in today's world and in today's America and, and the word Christian, as we've come to realize, doesn't necessarily mean the same thing to everybody. To one thing, being a Christian means I've given my life to Christ. I am fully sold out for living for him. I've dedicated my life to him. I will do whatever he asks me to do. But to the very next person, being I'm a Christian means my mom drugged me to church once when I was little, and she claims she's a Christian. So I'm American. I must be a Christian. Two totally different definitions of Christianity from two totally different backgrounds but they still both call themselves the same thing. They call themselves Christian. And so I need to explain to you guys about who God is so that we can understand we can come onto the same page as to who God the Father is. We need to have a good understanding, and, and you need to spend time in Scripture reading the Old Testament. I know sometimes people don't like reading the Old Testament. We need to spend that time to understand who God the Father is, to understand who we serve. And I know a lot of the people don't really like reading the Old Testament because it feels judgmental or it feels like there's a lot of death and destruction and it feels like God just got wrath-happy and was just smiting everybody that existed. But between the pages, if you read it close enough, you'll come to the conclusion that God didn't want to do any of those things. God desperately didn't want to do what he did in the Old Testament. And if you don't believe me, I've got some scripture for you. Ezekiel 18.30-32 Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Ezekiel 33.11 says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So God is saying here, I will do this. I don't want to do it. I'm begging you, stop, turn, stop. Seriously, stop. Turn away, I don't want to do this. But he needed to do it. How many of you guys have taken at least a, a little grain of pleasure with someone's death? And by that I mean someone like, someone truly rationally evil, like, like a Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden, a, a Hitler. You've taken a little bit of pleasure with their death. I mean, I, I'll raise my hand because I can actually remember when uh, Saddam, well, I can remember when both Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden um, were captured and killed. I can remember when Osama bin Laden died, and I can remember being excited about it, and I can remember posting on Facebook that I was excited that we finally captured, finally killed Osama bin Laden. And I can remember almost immediately, as soon as I hit the post button on Facebook, God convicting me. I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to me, why are you happy about this? Why are you happy about this man's death? And my response basically, you know, I was, I was trying to rationalize, I was because this is a very evil man. A lot of people will live because he is dead. And the Holy Spirit said to me, this whole time you were looking for him to be killed when you should have been praying for him to receive Christ. Because could you imagine what he could have been for the kingdom of God if he had turned from his ways and repented? But instead you were excited that this man is dead. And just I just remember the heaviness of it, and I will never forget it, and I, I hope I never forget it in the future. Because even the most evil, horrible, evil people in the world, it is better for them to repent and turn to God than it is for them to die a sinner. And God's saying here, I don't want anyone to die. I don't take pleasure in anyone's death. I don't even take pleasure in Hitler's death. 
I would rather him turn to me. If you don't believe me that God would say that, turn to the New Testament. Look up the story about Saul, who eventually becomes Paul. Saul was a Hitler of the time, so to say. Saul was seeking out Christians, killing them, capturing them, putting them in prison, destroying their lives, doing everything he could to take out what they were trying to say. Is that not what Hitler was doing to the Jews? And yet, Saul eventually becomes Paul, and he eventually goes on to not only give his life to Christ, not only repent, not only turn from his ways, but he also goes on to write most of the New Testament. How much power could there have been in a testimony from Osama bin Laden to the Muslim population? How powerful and how mighty could his testimony have been? But instead, I was excited about his death. And so maybe your response to me is, well, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? God destroyed two entire cities. God, that is who God is. Now, I want you to be very careful here because I want to make sure that you don't confuse God's love for us with God's judgment and God's just and his character because he loves us unconditionally. But God is a just God. God is a just judge. I think it's in the movie Courageous. There's a story in uh, in the story, basically, the guy's explaining God to this other guy, and he says, so what if a man breaks into your grandma's house, kills your grandma, and escapes? And this man finally gets arrested, and he's on trial. And during the trial, the judge is sitting up there, and he says, defend yourself. And the guy basically says, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I didn't mean to kill that lady. And for the most part, I, I give a lot of money to charities. I do a lot of good. I, I go out and I, and I serve people a lot of times. And, and I would say my good outweighs my bad. And so the judge's response is, all right, you're good to go. You're free. If that was your grandma that was murdered, your mom or your, your brother or your sister or your, your fiance, whatever, find someone close and personal to you. If that was that person who was killed, would you then say that that was a just judge in allowing that person to go. No. You would want that person to go to jail. You would want him to serve time for his crimes. And so God is a just God. He's willing to allow us to suffer the consequences of our actions. But he doesn't want us to. He does everything in his power. Well, not everything in his power, short of taking away our free will, but I'll get to that later. God wants us to stop doing the things we're doing. God wants us to accept Christ. He wants us to fall in line with His will. He wants us to fall into a relationship with Him. But he, he loves us so much that He will allow us not to. He doesn't control us. And if you don't believe me that God truly does love us, then just think of the, the Scripture, John three sixteen through 17 We all know it. For God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved so it becomes clearer in the new testament how much God does love us because we see the story of Jesus Christ and we see the passion finally starting to pour out in the story of Christ and and him dying for us and him him just overly loving us saying you know I I know you're killing me. Jesus is saying, I know you're, you're literally hung, hanging me on a cross. And God, I still ask that you would forgive them. In the New Testament, we can begin to see how much God really loves us. But the thing about God is, we also have to remember, God doesn't need us. It's not like if we didn't exist, God wouldn't still be God. It's like if, if we didn't exist, it's not like he still would be sovereign. It's not that he all of a sudden would become less powerful. He would become less mighty. He would become less whatever. God is still God even without us. He doesn't need us. But because he doesn't need us and we still exist and he still created us, it shows me very simply that God wants us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants us to be close to him. He wants us to be in that conversation with him. He wants us seeking him out. I would rather God wanted me than need me. I would rather my wife wanted to be married to me than wanting or than needing me in her life. And so that tells me one thing. Because God doesn't need us, but he wants us and he loves us, that shows me that love is a choice. 
I choose to love my wife every single solitary day. It's not this butterfly feeling, this uninsatiable urge that makes me feel like I need her in my life and I can't live without her. That's not love. Love is a choice. That is a feeling we do get. And I'm not saying that I don't get butterflies around my wife and I don't feel like I didn't have that. I'm not saying I didn't feel like I didn't have that initial attraction. However, my love for my wife is a choice and I choose to love my wife every single solitary day. And I feel like the divorce rate in America would decline steadily very fast if people would recognize that love was a choice and they actually made that commitment to choose to love their spouse every single day. I choose to love my wife very simply enough. And my wife knows it. And my wife chooses to love me. She doesn't need me. It's not like I'm feeling some insatiable urge inside of her. She loves me because she chooses to love me. And so because of this, I'd like to go out on a limb here and say, and I'm, I'm assuming this here, but I would assume that because God chooses to love us, if we can come to that conclusion that God chooses to love us, then I would also say that he wants to hear from us. If he loves us, he wants us to be in a relationship. He wants us to talk to him. He wants to be involved in our lives. He wants to have that input in what we choose to do. But tonight, I feel like we need to make sure that the God that we're talking to is the real God and not just some Hollywooded version of God in which you know God gives over his powers for a day to a, day, to a dude named Bruce and destroys the earth. And I want to make sure that we're praying to the right God Because it becomes very important that we're praying to the right God and not just our own version of God whose sole existence is to make our lives peaceful and happy. I want to make sure that we're praying to the right God. Because if we're praying to the wrong God, then your relationship with God is going to suffer and it's going to be hard because the God that you're recognizing isn't God. It's what you want God to be, not what God is. And if we can control what God is, then is God really God? And I would venture to say, and I'm going to say it from, and I know it's not politically correct to say it, but there is one true God. And there is only one true God. And within Scripture, you can even see some instances in which false gods came across, in which these false gods had had a lot of influence. There's this awesome story, and I encourage you to read it on your own. It's in 1 Kings 18. There's basically this epic showdown between Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal. And these prophets of Baal, and basically what it was, was Ahab was trying to figure out who the true God was, who was the real God. And so they basically set up these two altars to dedicate to their gods. The 450 prophets of Baal had theirs, and they had, the, the, they had cut up meat and grain, and they had a little moat around it. They poured water all over everything. And on Elijah's side, he did the exact same thing. Cuts up meat, he puts grain around it, pours water over it. And Elijah knows God. And he sits back, and he just kind of watches the 450 prophets of Baal. The 450 prophets of Baal start from the second that it's set up, and just go and chant, and they're chanting, and they're begging, they're pleading, and it gets to a point where they become getting desperate, and they're basically like causing self-mutilation, trying to convince Baal to do what they want him to do. And the entire time, nothing happens. And it gets to the point where Elijah begins mocking him. He's like, hey, maybe your God's out going to the bathroom, you know. Maybe he's out taking a shower. Maybe he's busy. He doesn't really care to listen to you. And then Elijah stands up, and he prays immediately. And immediately, the fire from God comes down, consumes the altar, consumes the the grain around it, consumes all the water that's even in it. And it's almost instantaneous. That's our God. That is the God that we serve. That is the same God today as it was back then that is God so when you pray to God and you believe in the God of the Bible that is God he is powerful he is mighty and there is no other God like I said I encourage you go in your Bibles first Kings 18 it's a phenomenal story read it for yourself but like I alluded to in this story or not I alluded to but that I use this story to allude to was that sometimes we can come up with a pretty elaborate version of what we consider God to be Baal was this god of uh, the image of a bull. And a lot of times, even within early, early scripture, they would, the, the Jews would find themselves worshiping Baal. As soon as they turned away from God, they would start worshiping Baal. It was their own made-up image because, in my mind, because Baal was what they wanted God to be because Baal would probably, probably, and this is my assumption again, 
I assume Baal to them was what they wanted God to be because Baal offered them riches and glory and an easy life. And that's not necessarily the case with our God. He doesn't promise us that you're going to be Bill Gates rich and that everything in your life is going to be absolutely amazing and perfect. And I guess the reason why I know we can make up this pretty elaborate version of of what God is and who we believe God to be, I can remember back in the day, and I don't remember, it's been a few years now, but I can remember someone in a relationship with somebody and, and this person was abusing them. And instead of leaving this person who was abusing them, they continued to, to go back to this person. And they continued to go back to this person, continued to go back to this person. And this person was just abusing her, cheating on her, doing anything and everything in his power to, to, to belittle her and make her less than him. I remember everybody getting to this point where they're just like, dude, just, just leave him. You need to get out of this relationship. This isn't a good relationship. It's, it's, he's always been this way, and it's, he's always going to be this way. And I remember this person's response was, I don't believe God wants me to leave this man because I love this man. And I believe because I love him, God is love, so God must want me to be with him. And I just remember shaking my head because I was like, if that's what your definition of love is, then God is not that definition of love. I'm sorry. If that's what your definition of love is, then your idea of God being love is completely off. Because when it comes down to it, my God created love. My God determined what love is. My God is love. And so we can go on saying, I know God wanted this for me because because God is love and I love this person. It's the exact same thing. Maybe we come and take a step back. Take take a little step back and just realize that sometimes our version of what love is isn't necessarily what love is. So yes, God is love, but our definition of what love is doesn't necessarily mean that that is God's definition of what love is. And so even within love, one characteristic of God, we can warp it so much to fit what we feel like it needs to fit our needs to try to, to, to fill our agenda that I can only imagine what we can do to the, the rest of God can become even more warped. When something so pure and so amazing as love can be warped, what more can we do to the image of God? And the coolest thing about love, like I alluded to before, was that God gave us the choice to love Him. He doesn't force us to love Him. Because if God forced us to love Him, would it really be love at all? So God gives us a choice of whether or not we want to love Him. It is 100% up to us to decide whether or not we love God. And in that choice, we can begin to even begin to look at what love really is. And I believe that when we choose to love God and we align ourselves with God, we will accomplish everything that He asks us to do. There is nothing that you can't accomplish once you align yourself to God. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that if you align yourself to God that all of a sudden you will be an elite NFL quarterback or that you will be the the most famous rich uh, actress or actor out there. I'm not saying that as soon as you line yourself up with God that that kind of success will befall you. But what I'm saying is the successes will befall you because once you align yourself with God and His will, the things that He asks you to do, He will do that. You will take care of it. You will have successes. It might look a little strange for you from the outside perspective, but to you, you will know exactly what's going on. You will have a confidence because God will be behind you. It might look something like you'll have to march around a city seven times before it falls. It might look like you'll have to face a giant not wearing any armor, but you'll have a sling. It might look like even though you're out fishing for an entire day and you haven't caught a single thing, you'll throw your nets out one more time. And you'll come up with a load so heavy that you can't even really pull it into the boat without sinking it. Success might look like you'll start a church in Africa. And even though the entire time while you are the parishioner and you are in charge of that church, you don't get a single person to attend the church. However, post-death or once you leave, all of a sudden that church grows into one of the largest churches in the world. Success will befall you, but it will look different than what the world says success is. Because the reason you will succeed is because you put aside your own agenda and you take up God's agenda and God's agenda will win. And so how do we know if we serve 
the God of the Bible. That's what today's sermon really comes down to. And I know this is a heavy sermon. And I know last week's was a heavy sermon. But how will you know whether or not the God you're serving is the God of the Bible? Because I know we call him the same name, but that isn't, and I'm telling you, just because you call it the same name doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same God. So how do you know that you serve the God of the Bible? How do you know that the person you're praying to is the God of the Bible and not just your own desires of what he is? I can tell you, the best place to start is looking at how you treat God. Is God an ATM for you? Is he just something you go to whenever you need something or you want something? And it's not something, some, something where you necessarily even ask him what he wants done in your life, but it's what you want done. Because if we think about it this way, and we start to realize how amazing, how righteous, how pure, how good God is, I think how we treat him will begin to change. Because if you look in the Old Testament, Moses asks God to look at his face, and God replies with, no, you can't. Because if you look upon my face, you will die. You cannot look upon my face. Man, that's a righteous, pure. I can't even fathom how good that is. If it's so good that I can't even look upon it because I will die. How do you, I can't justify that in my own brain. It's probably good that I can't justify him because if you can justify God, sign number two, that you're probably serving the, right, the wrong God. And Isaiah 6.3, if you don't believe me. And basically Isaiah has a vision of God. And in this certain Bible story, he walks in and there's seraphim. And seraphim have wings and their wings, they're using two to fly, two to cover their face, and I believe two to cover their feet. And they're standing there and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the God Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And they're yelling it so loud that the ground and the doorway and the threshold are shaking and they're covering their face so that they don't look upon God because he, he is so amazing. And they respect Him. They respect Him so much that they shield themselves from Him. So when you talk to God, do you praise Him? Do you thank Him for what He's done? Do you, do you say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Do you say how amazing He is? When you worship, do you worship with the intention that God is everything that I'm thinking as I'm worshiping. The words on this screen talking about how amazing, how righteous, how holy he is. Am I actually meaning that or am I just standing here singing some words on a screen because maybe it sounds good. Maybe I want my voice to sound good just so that others can hear me. So picture it for just a moment. You walk in here for Chi Alpha and you've got God sitting on a throne just as Isaiah sees him. You see God sitting on a throne. You've got seraphim shielding themselves, yelling, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're yelling it so loud the ground is shaking. There's smoke filling the room. God's train of His robes fill the entire room. You walk into this room and you see that and you walk up to God. What are you going to say to Him? What would you say to Him in that situation? Would you walk up to Him and be like, hey, so... uh I've got this test coming up tomorrow I haven't studied for. I'd really like it if you'd give me an A. Or would you walk up to him and be like, hey, I'm really mad at you because yesterday I asked for an A and I got a C and you did not help me. So I'm not talking to you. Would you say a, a short little snippet before you laid down in the corner and took a nap and went to sleep? Would you look around for a table of food so that you could ask God to bless the hands that made it? No way. There's no way you would have that reaction. My immediate response would be, I, I, would, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even know how to stand anymore. Man, if, if I walked into that scene and I saw that, I would just be at a loss. But at the same time, we can also look to Isaiah to see what our reaction truly would be like. Because Isaiah's reaction is, Immediately he cries out, woe is me, I am ruined because I am unclean. Immediately in God's presence, the weight of Isaiah's sin becomes so heavy that that is all that he can focus on. He's afraid he's going to be destroyed because he is unclean. He's saying, woe to me, I am ruined. I believe that immediately upon walking into that scene, the, the crap that I've done today, the, the, the getting 
mad at somebody for a stupid reason, the, the lying to somebody in order to, to, to fill my agenda. I mean, you can throw in whatever your problem, whatever you struggled with today. And I think that that would become amazingly, unfortunately clear to us. I believe that we would immediately want to repent of the things that, that we've done. And so when we talk to God here on earth, that is who God is. And so when we approach Him to talk to Him, see, that's the cool thing. We get to talk to that God. And so when we approach Him, we should approach Him with, we are approaching the God of the Bible, not our own dreamed up version of who God is. Not this God that wants everything in my life to go exactly how I want it to go. Because if that's the case, you're praying to the wrong God. Because that is who God is. And so, no wonder it's easy on earth for us to to fall away from God because we forget who God is. We forget what really God came to do and we forget what God is on His throne. Because Isaiah immediately called out his own sin in the presence of God. I feel like we would do the exact same thing. The weight of what we had done would become very obvious to us. And so why am I talking about all this? This is heavy. This sucks. This is... this. This is convicting. This is hard to hear. This, this gets aggravating. This gets, why would you talk about that from the pulpit? God is love. Everything is about love, love, love. Why do you focus on this? This is just fire and brimstone. This is something that, that went out of style. You need to stop talking like this. Nobody's going to enjoy this sermon. I don't enjoy this sermon. Because I think in order to understand God's love, we have to have a healthy fear of Him. We have to have a fear of God. Scripture talks many times about having a fear of God. And I want, I want to also throw out a little correction, and not, not necessarily a correction, but just in case you're assuming this. It doesn't mean we need to be afraid of God so that we cower away from Him when we don't approach Him the way we would fear a, a bear or a terrorist. That's not, that's not what we're saying by the fear of God. But picture it this way. When you were growing up, and I know this is the story for me, maybe it wasn't for you, but when I was growing up, I feared my parents. I absolutely loved my parents. I enjoyed spending time with them. I enjoyed conversations with them. I knew they loved me and I loved them, but I was afraid of them. I was afraid of upsetting them, especially my dad. I was afraid of disappointing him. I was afraid of what he would do if I screwed up. I was afraid of when I screwed up, of what his reaction would be if I went out drinking because as you guys know, I wasn't always a Christian. When I went out drinking and I, and, I, and I got in trouble for drinking and driving and I went to jail, I was afraid of my dad. I, was, I didn't even want to call him. I was afraid of everything he was going to say. As soon as he started saying it, I was still afraid of what he was going to do. I was afraid of what the, the consequences were truly going to be. I was afraid of my dad. But I knew that he loved me and I loved him. And I was in a good relationship with my dad. Don't think my dad was overbearing or abusive or anything like that. I had a good relationship with my dad. I was a punk little kid, though. But I loved my dad, but I still had that fear. I kind of like to compare the fear of the Lord the same kind of way. God loves us. We still love God. We still have this conversation with God. You still have conversations with your mom and dad. You still talk to him about your troubles. You talk to him about the good things in your life and the bad things in your life. You talk to him about the intimate details of your life but you can still have that healthy fear of your parents. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10 for me. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the board. And I want you guys to bear with me. I know this is heavy. I know this sucks. Like I said, when I was writing this, I didn't even want to give this sermon. It's a heavy sermon. But if you follow with me, just just keep up and keep listening. Anybody there? Somebody there? Matt, does your thing have a title of that section? There you go. There you go. Fear the Lord. There's an entire section of Scripture in which, what, what translation do you have? NIV? NIV titles it, Fear the Lord. So let's read this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. He chose you 
their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He depends, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him. Take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. God had just delivered them out of Egypt. Done this amazing, miraculous stuff. Was feeding them while they were in the desert. Was doing all this stuff for them. And yet, there was still a section devoted to saying, Fear the Lord. Love him. Cherish him. Worship him. Follow him. But in there is also fear the Lord. And the reason I'm sharing all of this is because, I, like I said before, I, I think we get caught up in this, this hippie version of God that, that God would never punish me because God's all loving and all powerful. And, and God, if God was really, if God really loved people, He wouldn't allow me to die. He wouldn't allow me to go to hell. He wouldn't allow starving children in Africa. If if God really loved me, God is would control all this stuff. And eventually you get into an unhealthy proportion of when God allows us a free will and when God takes away our free will. There's starving children in Africa, but did you know that if you make $5 an hour, you're wealthier than 80% of the world? Did you know that if you make... I think it's $50,000 a year. You're in the wealthiest 10% of the world. So yes, they're starving kids. But we have the free will to feed them or not. We have the free will of giving up our own agendas. Because it becomes very clear in Scripture. If you read Scripture and you serve God, God does tell us to feed the hungry. Psalms 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Read that one more time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All of those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so maybe you're telling me, Hey, Tanner, all of this, everything you've been quoting is the Old Testament. The game changed with the New Testament. Acts 10, 34-35 says, Then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts every nation, the one who fears Him and does what is right. That's in the New Testament too. And so why did I talk about this? Why am I talking about such a heavy subject? Why am I talking about something that I don't even want to talk about? Because when we begin to understand, we begin to fear, and we begin to have this healthy understanding of who God is, and we put this picture of who God is in the Old Testament, we can truly begin to understand how much He loves us. See, because everything I'm saying, that God that's on this throne, that, that His robe fills this room, this God that the seraphim are worshiping Him so loud and praising Him so loud that the ground is shaking, there's smoke filling the room, this God who is all-powerful, who does this stuff, this God who sends down Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, to cleanse us. Yeah, He did that for us. That's how much this God, this God that we've, we've painted a picture of tonight, that's how much He loves us. We can't even begin to fathom how much He loves us if we don't even understand who He is. And so when we understand how mighty and how powerful and how amazing and how pure and how glorious God is, we begin begin to put a picture of how much God loves us up. That same amazingly mighty, powerful God that we can't even look upon His face without death, that same God sent down Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross. That same God says, I don't want to kill even the most wicked. I wish they would turn back to me. That's how much He loves us. He loves us so much that no matter how far we stray away, no matter how jacked up we become, no matter even if we murder millions and millions of people, if we became Saul, God is still saying, I love you so much, I just want you to turn back to me. Accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice. It's that easy. I did all of the work. God is saying, I did all of the work. There's nothing you have to do. There's nothing you can do. I did all of the work. I love you that much. 
See, when we pray and when we worship, when we come in and we sing songs, that's the God that we're singing to. That's the God that when we come into here with the burdens of our day, with the, the guilt of, of what's happened, the, the shame of what we did last night or, or whatever, whatever it is, that burden that you've got on your shoulder, it's that same God that says, come here. You don't have to have this on your shoulders anymore. You don't need to carry that burden anymore. It's the same God. And when we begin to picture God as He truly is, and we begin to paint this picture of how much He loves us and how amazing His love for us, we can't even fathom His love for us. I mean, there's still unforgiveness in my heart of people who've wronged me. I know there is. And I don't know if if I'll ever get to a point where there's nobody on earth that I could dislike. I don't know if I could ever get to a point where I literally loved everyone on earth. Even somebody who's wronged me in a, in a very, very awful way. I don't know if I could ever get to that point. And so that tells me, if I'm the definition of love, if how I love people is the definition of love, I really hope that God doesn't love the same way as I love. Because I'd be screwed. God's love is so much better. It is so much more amazing. It is so much more powerful. And so when we can begin to look at God that way, and we begin to understand Jesus Christ and Him coming and dying on the cross, Him ascending down from heaven, basically taking our place, taking on our sin so that we can inherit His righteousness. And we begin to understand that and we begin to paint this picture of who God is, God the Father is in the Old Testament, who He is in the New Testament. And we begin to understand that And we enter into His presence. And now that we have Jesus Christ, when we enter into His presence and we paint that picture like I pictured, or like I painted for you with walking in here in that way, you no longer have to think of your sin because Jesus Christ covered your sin. He removed your sin. So when you walk into His presence, your response no longer would be, I'm unclean, woe is me. Your response should be exactly what happens after the the seraphim touched the coal to Isaiah's lips. His next response is, here I am, send me. So we no longer have to have the burden of our sin. We no longer have to enter into God's presence with that hanging over us. But instead, our response should be something like, here I am, send me. God's saying, I need someone. Right now, God's saying, I need someone to reach Shattern State College. I need someone to reach Andrew's dorm. I need someone to reach Edna. Our response should be, here I am, Lord, send me. So now to, to kind of close out service. We're going to spend a little bit of time in God's presence. I want you to, to, to take a second and picture that, that scene that I, that I painted. Picture the powerful and the might of God. Picture the God who you can't even look upon His face. Picture the powerful, mighty God. Picture the love of God. Picture Jesus Christ coming down ascend, er, and dying on the cross and ascending into heaven so that we could inherit His righteousness. Picture that, that God. Picture that before you even enter into His presence before you even begin talking to Him, before you even say a word to Him. Because in here, I want us to approach God, I want us to approach Jesus with that healthy, healthy level of fear. And like I said before, not that I'm afraid of God because that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we need to take our time with God seriously. We need to take that time that we get because God did what it takes to to get to a point where we can even enter into a conversation with Him. And yes, that is the God that you talk to when you pray to Him. And so I want us to take it seriously tonight. I want us to take a few minutes, just a few minutes, and take our time seriously in His presence. And I know we've got music going on and we're, we're, we're creating an atmosphere that makes it easy. But atmosphere doesn't necessarily equal God. You can do everything you can under your power to create an atmosphere that, that entices you to, to get up and dance and, and do these things with worship. But if the presence of God isn't there, if you're not worshiping that God, then it's all for nothing.
And can I get a few small group leaders to come up? And so tonight we're gonna, I'm gonna open the altars. The altars will be open. If you need prayer for anything, there's anything burdening on you on your heart, come up, seek prayer. If you're a girl, seek prayer from a girl. Guy, seek prayer from a guy. It doesn't matter what your prayer need is. If you've got something burdening you, the altars are going to be open. If tonight, if you're sitting in here and this is the first time you've maybe come to ministry, the first time you came to Chi Alpha, the first time you've been to church, or maybe this is the first time you've really even understand the magnitude of who God is. This is the first time anybody sat back and painted a picture of who God is, of who Jesus is. And that's you and you're saying here tonight that you would like to give your life to Him. Come find me. Come find one of the small group leaders. We would love to pray with you. The altars are going to be open for just a few minutes and I'll come back in closing prayer. Last week I mentioned that what I wanted you to take away Thank you guys. You guys can be seated. If you have prayer requests that you didn't really feel comfortable coming up and asking for prayer, seek one of us out. We love you guys. We would love to pray with you guys. But last week I mentioned how the one thing I wanted you to take away was that there's nothing more important than hanging on to excitement in your relationship with Christ. Hanging on to that, no matter what it takes, to hang on to that excitement. And so tonight, if, if I can tell you one thing that I want you to take away is it is so important for us to take time on earth, to dedicate time to, to learning about God, learning about Jesus, learning about the Holy Spirit. It is so important for us to do the work that you don't just take what I say as my word for it, that you take the time and you actually invest in it and you try to figure it out for yourself. Don't let your faith be my faith. Build your own faith. Don't let your faith be your parents' faith. Don't take for granted what I say. Read in the Bible. I give you the Scriptures that I quote because I want you to go in the Bible and read it for yourself. Read it for how you interpret it and pray for interpretation from the Holy Spirit. Because I'm not saying I'm always right. I mean, there's been actually a few times where I get done speaking and I'm listening to my sermon and I'm like, oh, well, I guess, yeah. I misquoted that scripture a little bit or something. I am getting better. I do more work, do more diligent work. But what I'm saying is I'm not promising you that I'm always going to be right. But I'm also not saying that you need to, to critique every single word that I say and get to a point where you doubt every single word that I say. But what I'm saying is, even with what I'm saying, there's a healthy doubting of what I say. Figure it out for yourself. Read the Scripture. Make your faith your own faith. Don't just take my word for it. So if there was one thing I want you to get out of today, it is I want you to realize how important it is for you to learn about God on your own. You take the time, invest in that. Learn about God. Because... The last thing that I want to do is show up to heaven and regret all of the time that I spent on earth because when, when God begins to recount my life to me, I don't want to get up there and regret every single second I had on earth because I spent all my time on Netflix or I spent all of my time on Facebook or I spent all my time on my phone or, or even to the fact or even to the point where I spent all of my time trying to cater to perhaps my wife's needs. I want to look back on my life and say, and not even necessarily me say, I want God to look back on my life and say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Within my relationship with my wife, as I told you, I choose to love her. I choose to love her every single day. But with that, I choose to love God even before my wife. And my wife knows that. And I'm not just saying that because she's not here. My wife knows that I love God before I love her. God knows I love Jesus more than I love her. God know, or my, my wife knows that, that God is more important to me than my own wife, than my own future family. God is the most important thing to me. And my wife would say the exact same thing, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Because if her life is aligned with God and my life is aligned with God, the things that God can use us for trumps anything that I think I can accomplish on this earth. Because when we die and the things of this world are no longer there, what will you have in heaven? What treasures will you have stored up? Will you have stored up 
unlocking and, and beating Call of Duty? Or will your treasures be something that actually matters? Lives dedicated to Christ. Lives saved. People who decided they weren't going to commit suicide because they felt the love of Christ. Are you going to have those things because God asked you to do them? Are those going to be your treasures in heaven? Or is it going to be 15 series on Netflix that you binge-watched this week? I'm guilty of that. I binge-watched a show this weekend. It was a good show. But I would really like, when I get to heaven... To have that show that I binge watched on Netflix and I watched the whole entire first season this weekend. I really don't want that to be my accomplishments of my life. I don't want the things that are pointless that we sometimes can create to, to, to make, uh, to be more important than they really are. Sometimes when someone truly needs us, we won't create a little bit of time out of our schedule for them because the things that we've decided are more important than them come first. I don't want that for my life. And so I just ask that you guys would take that same level of commitment, that same level of fear, that same level of love with your relationship with Christ. Because if you guys could begin to do that, and I'm not saying you don't, because I know we have a great group of people in here, and I know you guys love the Lord, and I know that that's why I can give a sermon like this, and you guys won't leave and never come back. Because this was a heavy sermon. This was a hard sermon. This was probably a little bit of a boring sermon. If you guys, I see a few new faces. If you've never been to Chi Alpha before and you absolutely hated this sermon, I just beg you to give me one more chance because I realized the magnitude of this sermon, but I really felt like I was impressed to give it. Give God one more chance because if it's real, it's worth giving one more shot. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to learn what you really look like and learn what you really are and what you really represent. So God, tonight I just ask that you would impress upon us your magnitude, your glory, your perfection. But most of all, I ask that you would impress upon us your love. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would have his way in here tonight and that you would draw us closer to you. Whatever that looks like for us, that you would draw us closer to you tonight. I thank you that you love me even more than I can fathom. God, you are holy. You are holy. You are holy. We love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.